0: Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your love and your grace in Christ, the forgiveness that it offers to all of us, Father, both to um, my brother in, in Christ, Brian, and to myself. When I make mistakes, to anyone in this room, Father, as we make mistakes, those things were addressed by Christ on the cross. And yet, Father, we still we want to do better. We want to be like you, even as you have already uh, come and lived, made your home inside of us. Father, tonight as we study, that's our goal. It's so that as we know you, as our mind is transformed, renewing itself in the truth of your word, that we would then have cause in our hearts to live like you, to witness in our life, to be someone who, as we speak and work in this world, Father, our, our life is a testimony to you. Boy, Father, what a what a great testimony that would be. If all of us could say that we have put aside all those things that differentiate us from you, and we just live like you live. We let you live through us. That's our hope, Father. May this little church become a larger church, and may it grow not just in number, but in maturity. May it be a place, Father, that you feel at home in the hearts of your people, and let us reach others with your word. And in tonight's teaching, Father, speak through me and speak truth as only you can. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We were in Matthew. We were in chapter 3, and we had just covered the beginning of that chapter, which was John the Baptist in the wilderness, beginning his ministry. We're getting into the point of Jesus' own baptism later in this chapter. But tonight, tonight we're going to look at Sadducees and Pharisees. We're going to really focus in on this group of people for a moment, and get to know them, because they are major characters in the Gospels. They're going to come up over and over again. And they are important for what they represent. Because although Pharisees, Sadducees, they don't exist anymore in our culture. The kind of people they are still do exist. The kind of thinking they represent very much still exists. And so we need to understand them even as they are portrayed in the gospel. So let's go into chapter 3. We pick up again. I read a few verses last week that I didn't really dive into. I knew I wouldn't. I saved it for when I came tonight. So that's where we're going to go. Chapter 3, verse 7. And speaking of John the Baptist, it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. All right, so we have Pharisees and Sadducees. I think the last time I taught, I said these men were the reigning experts in Israel on matters of God and piety, and they were. Now, also remember, Israel was ruled by a religious law, You know, the law that was given to Moses. It wasn't just a rule for what they did on Saturdays at church, so to speak. That was their rule for law all the days of the week. It was their civil law. It was their criminal law. And as such... It meant the men who ruled and governed the people according to that law were themselves religious people because it was a religious law. Even under Roman occupation, the Jews still had a measure of autonomy and they ruled themselves to a degree. And the ones who did that ruling were men like Sadducees and Pharisees. And just like any government, these politicians were divided into political parties or political factions. And just like today, these factions covered a spectrum from radical to orthodox from conservative to liberal. So let's talk about each of these groups in that context. You have the Pharisees, for example. The Pharisees were the religious conservatives of Jewish political life. They were the descendants, ultimately, of Ezra and his scribes, the effective descendants. They were really carrying on what Ezra started. They studied and memorized the law of Moses. Many of these guys had memorized the entire Old Testament. Can you imagine doing that? There's a test that's often applied in some circles, rabbinical circles where they're training, even still today, where they train men in rabbinical terms. They train them so well, and they memorize their text so well, that their final exam, and I've heard this from a guy who's who's knowledgeable about this stuff. I still don't believe it, but he's told me it's true. The final exam for some of these guys is they'll take an Old Testament. Remember, their Bible is only the Old Testament. So they'll take the Old Testament like this, closed, shut, and they'll nail a nail through it at some point on the cover. You've got a nail sticking out of your Bible. And then the test is they have to name every word that that nail has pierced through the entire Bible. So they not only know the text, they know where on the page the words fall. I mean, I don't even know how that's possible, but that's what they said these guys do. So how much time is involved in that kind of memorization? That gives you an indication of how seriously they took their their task. So they would memorize the law, and they also were experts in all these associated volumes of knowledge, of rabbinical writings, that had developed over the centuries to explain the text of Scripture, and in many cases just replace it. They interpreted those laws like a judge would today, and they enforced those laws within the culture like a prosecutor or a policeman would today. And they had a very conservative, literal, hard-lined view of what the text of Scripture said, about what all these rules meant. And they enforced the letter of these laws with threats and with intimidation. And like most pious, self-righteous religious authorities, at the end of the day, they were hypocrites. Because as Jesus says elsewhere, they didn't do the very things they asked everyone else to do. Here's how he describes them at one point. We'll cover this later in Matthew 23. Uh, We'll probably get there in, what, a couple months? But Matthew 23, we hear this. Jesus speaking to these guys, says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, you know, herbs, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, and you swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, and the inside are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, First, clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and uncleanliness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You ever met somebody like that? Unfortunately, churches are full of people like that. And these guys, these Pharisees, they held grip on power. Their base of power was the way they held these rules over people's heads. They were the self-proclaimed gatekeepers of heaven. You wanted to go to heaven? Well, you better, t- you better do what they say. That was the way they held power. They dictated to the Jewish people what they had to do to please God. And they determined who had met the rules and who had not. The Pharisees exploited the people's desperation to be approved by God, and so they used that, that religious power to become powerful, and most importantly, to become wealthy. There's another quote from Jesus regarding these guys. In Luke 16:13. he says, No servant can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and wealth. And then he says this, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. So to sum it up, if you want to remember and understand Pharisees, just remember, the Pharisees convinced people that they held the keys to the kingdom, and they exploited that power to make themselves rich. Sound familiar? Now, that's one end of the spectrum. On the other end of this political spectrum, you have the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were the liberal religious leaders of their day. They thought that Pharisees took their religion way too seriously and way too literally. And they rejected many of the basic teachings of Scripture, including the reality of resurrection. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in devils. They didn't believe you even had a spirit. These are people that, because of their liberal views... They focused almost entirely on earthly politics, earthly accomplishment. They cared very little about Scripture. They gave very little thought to the supernatural. And their power came because they had control over the temple operations. Remember the temple. This is the gigantic Herod's temple in Jerusalem. It's a gigantic facility that he took decades to build. It was a complex operation. It was a massive building. There was all kinds of stuff happening in there all the time. It was the center of Jewish life. And the Sadducees had responsibility for everything that happened inside that facility. They had the authority over the temple guards and the priests, and they presided over all the criminal trials that took place at the Sanhedrin meetings inside the temple. And most importantly, the Sanhedrin managed the temple funds. And if you know anything about you know, whoever has the purse strings, they have all the power, right? So every Jew under the law was required to tithe somewhere between 20% and 30% of their annual income. You know, the thought that a tithe means 10%, that's a misnomer. That's not true. The word means 10%. But the law required Jews to tithe between 20 and 30% of their income on an annual basis. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm just telling you that's what the Jews had to do. They had to give that money to the temple, according to the law. So that's a tremendous amount of money flowing into the coffers at the temple on a regular basis and the sadducees controlled what happened to that money and that wealth gave them significant power over the people now if that wasn't enough the sadducees also had a majority rule over the sanhedrin at this time in history like a majority in congress if you will so the sanhedrin was this ruling council over the jews and the sadducees were the party in power In Jesus' day, they retained their power by maintaining a cozy relationship with the Roman authorities who had conquered Judea a few decades earlier. So they made friends with the Romans, and the Romans let them have power. And in contrast to the Pharisees, because the Pharisees despised the Romans. So you have Pharisees, you have Sadducees, rival political powers among the people of Israel. And when you consider their vast differences, politically, religiously, so on, it's hard to imagine these two groups ever aligning ever agreeing on anything. And generally speaking, they didn't. Pharisees and Sadducees were always opposing each other. They even opposed what they thought of Rome. If you think how bad it is, they couldn't even agree on whether to oppose Rome or not. One loved Rome, one didn't. So it would take a very significant threat, a common enemy, for these two groups to ever be on the same side. Enter John the Baptist. And later, Jesus. John is exactly the opposite of these two groups. He has no pedigree. I mentioned this last time. He has no pedigree. His teaching is not agreeing with either of these groups. He's not only opposed to the status quo, he's calling for his followers to oppose the status quo in Israel. And therefore, his teaching threatened to erode the base of power that these two groups depended on for their own livelihood in the culture. So when you're a Pharisee or a Sadducee, and you see what John is doing, There's only one way to take this guy on. There's only one way to see him. He's a revolutionary. He is a guy threatening to turn up the boat, you know, turn the boat over and ruin everything that you have going on. You've got to silence this guy. Even as the Pharisees and the Sadducees jockeyed for power within Israel, they both depended on the status quo staying in place. And so to them, it's like today if a third party candidate tries to get into the race, the other two don't like that at all. That ruins their little game. That's what was going on here. So they've come out into the wilderness, and they've come to challenge his work, and they've heard about the crowds, they've heard about his strange rituals, baptizing people in the river. What's all that about? But I'll tell you what really got their attention, and what really concerned them, was John's message that a Messiah was coming soon. That was something they had to pay attention to. Because the Jewish people had long wanted a Jewish Messiah. They've often been told to expect one. Over the centuries, the rabbis of Israel had studied Scripture. They wanted to know when and how the Messiah was going to arrive. They wanted to know what He would do when He would come. And it fell to these guys, to these religious leaders, to confirm for the people if and when any kind of Messianic prophecy was being fulfilled. Because, by the way, John's not the first guy to come along declaring something about the Messiah. Crackpots were coming along all the time saying it. But they had to be validated. And if the religious leaders said, this guy's not for real, the people ignored him. And so they're coming out now to do the same for John. Someone like John making messianic claims, in this case saying the Messiah was coming soon. They've come to investigate. But here's something you have to understand about both these groups. Both these groups of religious leaders, they assumed that the coming Messiah was going to look and sound a lot like them. I mean, the Pharisees assumed the Messiah was going to look like a Pharisee. No, the Sadducees assumed he was going to look like a Sadducee. Because every religious sect believes that they are poster children for godliness. Right? I mean, it's human nature. And so when the Holy One of Israel finally does show up, they're sure they're going to be able to spot Him because it'll be like looking in a mirror. And that's you know, it's still going on today. I mean, every pious group that you ever meet believes that they've cornered the market on how to find God. I mean, Mormons believe God is a Mormon living in Utah. Uh, Muslims believe God is a Muslim in Mecca. Uh, Catholics think God makes His home in the Vatican, right? I mean, it, it's, it's what we think. And every deeply religious person believes that when they finally meet God, He's going to remind them of themselves. And we wouldn't say it. No one talks like that, right? It just seems a little too much, right? But deep down inside, we're pretty sure we're going to recognize Him. Because we invent ideas about God that naturally project our preferred assumptions onto Him. We make God in our own image. People have never stopped doing this. But they also never stop to consider that their assumptions are wrong. Now maybe at this point I ought to ask, what about us? What about Christians? Do we do this too? Well, to the extent that we rely on the Word of God as our source of knowledge, well then, we can avoid this problem, yes. We can know God truly by His Word. And in His Word, He reveals Himself for who He truly is. And if you read the text honestly, you won't like it because it looks a lot different than you. You know, there's nothing affirming about the text of Scripture. Not when it's speaking about the differences between you and God, me and God. But it's still the best thing you could ever hear because that truth changes you and you start to become like Him, right? That's the whole point of getting to know Him. But on the other hand, if you and I depart from a reliance on the Word of God, then it is possible for us to remake God in an image that affirms us, that lets our wrong thinking continue, because it's that kind of thing that's allowed Christians to remake God into a God of prosperity. right? That's what we want, that's what He is, that works for me. Or a God of healing, or a God of social justice or God of mystical signs and wonders. We just project our hopes and our desires onto Him. We make Him one-dimensional, and as a result, we diminish Him. Now, the only true and proper way to understand God is to study what He said, just to listen to what He has revealed to us about Himself in His Word. And you can't imagine something else. You can't go through this process of who is God and then just answer that question by giving an answer you prefer. Because that's just projection. It's not spiritual insight, it's fantasy. There's a lot of people doing that. I'm not talking so much about Christians. There's just a lot of people in the world who are spiritual. You ever heard them say that? Are you a Christian? No, but I'm very spiritual. What does that mean? I think it means this. I think it means I have decided to consider God. Only, of course, what they're saying is I've decided to consider Him in a way I prefer, and that's what lets me sleep at night. That's not how it works. God is who He is, and He's very unlike you and me. He's holy, He's righteous, He's pure, He's omniscient, He's all-powerful. You're never going to meet or experience anything or anyone on this earth, this side of heaven, who is like God. And as a result, when God does appear, and in the case of our story, in the form of Christ the Messiah, God incarnate, when He finally did that in Jesus Christ, Jesus affirmed absolutely no one by His appearing he validated no one and nor do any of god's true representatives anyone who is true to the text of scripture and represents it honestly will not affirm someone listening to their teaching not in the sense that i tell you you're fine the way you are go home feeling good i might tell you that you're better now with christ but that's not the same thing as saying you're fine the way i found you and and that's not what we want otherwise what's the point But you've got to remember that for the Pharisees and for the Sadducees, someone like John could not qualify as a representative of God because he was nothing like what they imagined God to be, and he wasn't saying anything that they imagined God to say. Even though God's Word told them that there would be a man out in the wilderness, crying, making a way for the Messiah, even though they were told that this was going to happen, nonetheless, they saw nothing in John that reminded them of God. And so what they assume is, John is not a representative of God. So they had an obligation. They were going to come and investigate. They were going to determine if this was truly a real deal. And then based on their decision, the people of Israel would respond. So now John, let's flip the table here for a minute. John knows all this. I mean, these guys, who they were and what they stood for was well understood in the culture. So John's out doing his thing. He sees them arrive. He knows what's going on. He knows they're out to oppose him. He hasn't have any mistaken impression of their purpose. He mocks them. And as a result, you see him decide to land the first blow. And that gets us now to the text. You see in verse 7, John just launches out at these guys. He doesn't ask him any questions. He just says, brood of vipers. Not the best people person kind of way to start a conversation, is it? Brood of vipers, you know? Actually, in, in Greek, the word that you and I have translated brood, it's literally the word offspring in Greek, like children. So what John is calling these men is the children of a deadly serpent which is a not-so-subtle reference to Satan. So, spiritually speaking, John is saying, you are children of the devil. That's what he called them. And if you think he's being a bit harsh, do you remember what Jesus said about these same guys? In John's Gospel in 844, John told this is Jesus speaking directly to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says, you are of your father the devil. You brood of vipers, same thing. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and a father of lies. So both John and Jesus call these men children of Satan because in a literal sense, that's what they were. Like all unbelievers, they have their spiritual source in Satan. They're born with a nature, the fallen nature of Adam, that has a shared evil with the devil. That nature of sin and rebellion that the devil had first, and that Adam took on in his sin, and that all humanity inherits. Everyone's born this way, according to Scripture. Everyone's born into sin. But the sin of these guys goes a step further, because even as they oppose God by their nature, what are they doing? They're portraying themselves to the people as speaking for God. Notice John asks sarcastically, Well, who warned you to come out here and avoid the coming judgment? Remember I said last time that John's message, as he baptized people, it included this call to everyone to repent because the kingdom of God was at hand. The judgment is coming. You're running out of time. That was sort of the message he was asking people to consider. And so John looks up, sees these guys, and says, well, who warned you to come out and repent and to heed the call and to get out of trouble with God? And he says it entirely sarcastically because that's not at all why they're there. That's not at all what they're thinking. They're not afraid of the judgment. In fact, if there was a person in Israel who was confident that they would make it through the judgment with no concerns, it was these guys. Which is the greatest irony in the world, right? When you talk to a Christian sometimes who's worried about their salvation, I always tell them, first thing I always say is, the only people I ever meet who worry about their salvation are Christians. (laughs) Unbelievers do not sit around worrying about their salvation. It's the Christian who has moved from a state of unbelief to the state of a knowledge of god of having received His mercy and grace, having appreciated it for what it is, it's that person who has the perspective now to finally look back and go, oh my goodness, I'm so glad I'm not that person anymore. Look how scary that would have been. And then a little doubt enters in and you start to wonder, don't you? Maybe I haven't really got what I think I got. Oh, that would be terrible. You know, Unbelievers are on the other side of that. They don't even know what they don't know. So it's not a perfect rule, but I think it's a good general rule. Only, un- only believers sit around worrying about whether they're saved. And these guys, being unbelievers, have no worries. Or so they think. They're not afraid. Because after all, if you imagine that God looks a lot like you, sounds like you, thinks like you, well then you're not going to be worried when you meet Him, are you? It's going to be like a reunion. On the other hand, the more you understand your sinfulness, the more you need God. The more you cry out to Him. The more you seek for His mercy. So what John says in verse 8, he says, you better turn from your sin while you still have opportunity. In other words, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, which was the prerequisite to getting John's baptism. No one got in that water with John unless they had borne fruit, so to speak, of repentance. They had shown evidence that in their heart they truly were repentant. In Luke's gospel, you learn some of the ways that John was explaining to other people about how to do that kind of thing. In Luke 3.10, he says, The crowds were questioning him, saying, Tell us what we shall do. All right, these are people who are desperate. And they know they're in trouble with God. And they don't know how to get right with God. And they're asking John, Tell us. This is what he says, verse 11. And he would say to them, To the man who has two tunics, he is to share with him who has none. And he who has food, to do Likewise. And some tax collectors came to be baptized and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you've been ordered to collect. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, What about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. You could sum it all up by saying, Do what's right. Just show me that you believe that God is a judge and that you'll be accountable. Do what's right. Not to earn His mercy, not to achieve salvation, to reflect your true concern for your sin. You know, that's a good test for your kids, by the way. If any kid or child under your authority says, I'm sorry for what I do, the test is, show me. You know, it's not earning your love. It's not making them your child. That's already done. The question is, show me you're serious with your words. That's all. Walk the walk if you can talk the talk. That's what he's asking. But of course, John knows that the religious leaders have no interest in these things. So he anticipates their response. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, but he doesn't wait for any answer. He refutes one of their common defensive claims, that they were children of Abraham. He knew where they were going to go. The religious leaders of that day would teach Israel that if you were a physical descendant of Abraham, that was sufficient to assure you entrance into the kingdom. They used to teach that Father Abraham stood at the gate of hell, outside hell, right at the gate, waiting in case a Jew got directed down there by mistake, he would turn around and send him to heaven. I mean, this is the kind of nonsense they made up, but they did that to assure themselves that their Jewish heritage was sufficient. They used to refer to this teaching as the merits of the fathers. And that's a way of saying that all Jews were credited with the righteous deeds of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just on the basis of that bloodline. It's like, my daddy was so good, I don't have to worry. You know people like that? my granddaddy was a Baptist, my daddy was a Baptist, my mama was a Baptist, I'm good. Or you can substitute Catholic or Methodist or whatever, right? There's this thinking that it's born into us, like we inherit it. And so from their point of view, repentance was not necessary. Every Jew effectively had a get-out-of-hell-free card. Okay, that was their thinking. John turns to them and says, Oh, you think your children are Abraham. What's his answer? He says, Don't you suppose this. Don't you think that that's going to get you out of heaven? Don't think that you're special because you were born by chance into the right family. John says, That don't count for nothing. John says, God could even raise up children, meaning followers, from stones, if necessary. Now, in Hebrew, there's a wordplay there, because the word stone in Hebrew and the word children in Hebrew rhyme. So what John did was make a little play on words, like a little schoolyard taunt. You know, He's made a little rhyme to make fun of them. It's a literal truth, remember, because God made Adam out of dirt, which is little stones. So he's being literally true. He's saying, you know, being a child of Abraham is not a notable achievement. You don't frame it and put it on your wall and, and rest on that. If God can raise up children from stones, then a Pharisee or a Sadducee is nothing special. No, entrance into the kingdom of God is going to take a little bit more than that, and it starts with repentance. A changing of your outlook, of your sinful behavior, and a faith toward God. And John says the opportunity for that is coming to an end soon. He says in verse 10, The axe is already at the root of the trees, ready to cut down any tree that isn't bearing fruit. Now he's speaking in metaphor, but the imagery is pretty easy to understand, right? The axe would represent the Messiah's judgment. The judge coming to make an evaluation of the tree... And that time is soon. The axe is so close to being wielded. You know, If you ever seen anybody cut a tree or a log, you don't start with the axe up here, do you? You kind of put it down there. You put it on the base of the tree or the wood, and then you take your swing. But it's that preparatory stuff that tells you somebody's about to get cut. Either me or the tree, but somebody's about to get cut because I'm going to go throwing an axe around. That's what he's saying. The axe is getting ready to be wielded. The only question is which trees are going to go down. And now the root of the tree, of course, is the moment of judgment. And the trees then would be the people of Israel. And God then has been planting them, so to speak, in the hope that they would produce fruit for their master. And the fruit then pictures a person's deeds done in keeping with repentance. And so what John is saying is... Those Jews who demonstrate a true heartfelt repentance in anticipation of God's mercy when the Messiah arrives, they'll be the ones judged as having produced good fruit. And of course, no farmer is going to cut down a tree that's producing good fruit. You want the fruit, leave the tree there to keep producing. But if there's an unproductive tree that's not producing anything, just sucking things out of the soil, not doing anybody any good, I'm going to cut it down. That's the metaphor. So John is teaching that those who would accept his baptism in anticipation of the Messiah's coming would be those who would withstand his coming judgment. But those who failed to bear that good fruit, for them, John says, they're just like those trees that get thrown in the fire. And of course, that's a metaphor for hell, for judgment. That's going to be the fate of these false religious leaders. And then John elaborates on this. In verse 11, he begins to talk more about this judgment. I want you to notice what he says about this judgment. He says in verse 11, "'As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance.'" But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So John opens by saying, As for me, I baptize with water. And in the way he says this, he diminishes himself... He minimizes his importance, and at the same time, he just describes the nature of his ministry. What's he doing? I'm baptizing with water. That's what I'm about. That's what I was called to do. His ministry was merely one of baptizing with water, a symbolic action. Now, it's important because God asked him to do it, but the only reason John's ministry had any importance at all is because it pointed you to the Messiah. You get that? If the Messiah wasn't coming, John's a crackpot in the desert. His only significance is that what he was doing was a connected act leading to what God was doing in his Messiah. And John says, the one who's coming after me, this one I'm pointing you to, he's a lot mightier than I am. John appreciated that his personal ministry was nothing if it did not glorify Christ. His ministry was a success, so to speak, if it led people to Jesus. That's what he was saying as he opens his comment here. I think that's actually a safe rule for how any of us can conduct our own personal ministry, whether that's in a way like I do it formally on a stage or whether it's the way you raise your kids or anything in between. If what you're doing or what you're saying brings people to Christ, to knowing Him in faith, to following Him in obedience, to serving Him in love, well, then you're on the right track. Keep doing that, whatever that is. On the other hand... If your efforts in ministry do little more than call attention to yourself or draw people to following you, well then you've gone wrong somewhere because that's not the point of ministry. You're following in the footsteps of the Pharisees. You're thinking you have some inherently worthy thing inside you that God needs. That's not true. Remember, God once spoke through the mouth of a donkey in the Old Testament. I I try to remember that myself as often as I can because what kind of value do I bring to this job if he can use donkeys? We need to think like John the Baptist, who said elsewhere in the Scriptures, speaking of Jesus, He must increase, but I must decrease. That's a good, safe rule in ministry. And John knew his place, because he understood who Jesus was. Right? He understood the relationship. He says in verse 11, I'm not even worthy to take off his sandals. And carrying or taking off another man's sandals was actually a a specific task of slaves. In the Jewish Talmud, it describes the, the duties of slaves as including taking off a master's dirty shoes when he came in from the field or from outside, and then carrying his clothes to the bathhouse at night for the man to take a bath after he came in. So what John is saying very clearly, by, by the way the culture would have understood it, he's saying, I'm not even worthy to be employed as Jesus's slave. Now, of course, if John the Baptist is not qualified to be Jesus's slave... Who can qualify as Jesus' slave? And yet the Bible calls Christians bond slaves, slaves of Jesus, servants of Jesus. So how can you and I be these servants or slaves of the Messiah if we're not worthy to be the slaves of Messiah? It's called grace, unmerited favor. God giving us a position of honor and blessing that we don't deserve. And doing so merely on the basis of his mercy and love. That's what we all have. That's what John is preaching to these guys. Do you hear him saying that? He's telling these guys, You stand there pompous and self assured in your own righteousness, and I'm telling you, the guy who's coming after me is so mighty, I don't even have the worthiness to be his slave. And yet here I am serving him as a prophet in the desert. Why? By grace. That's how you get there. That's how you find this God that you think you know. And he was asking these men to consider that that same God was prepared to grant them the same grace that he had granted John, if, if they would just humble themselves enough to repent. And then he issues a warning. He says, the one who's following me is going to do a much greater baptism than this one. I kind of like to think of it this way. He's saying, if you think this baptism bothers you, wait till you see the one that's coming. And to understand what he's saying, because he says at the end of verse 11 that he says that the Messiah is going to baptize with Holy Spirit and fire. And boy, some of us hear that and think, where's he going to go with this? This is a little scary. I don't know what this is about. I've seen some weird things in other churches. I hope he doesn't start talking about that here. It's generally misunderstood. And I want you to understand it this way. To understand what John is saying, you have to visualize the scene. So in your mind's eye, we're going to paint a little scene here of what's happening. In this moment, I want you to picture John. He's by the river, probably standing at the bank. There's a crowd of followers waiting to be baptized. They're all standing around. And at the edge of the crowd somewhere put these religious leaders. They're a little standoffish. They're just kind of looking on, scoffing at what John is doing. And John's speaking the words that he's speaking here loud enough for everyone to hear. And so in verse 11, I want you to imagine as John begins speaking what you see in verse 11, he begins with his eyes scanning the repentant crowd of followers who have come out, to be baptized, they're seeking God's forgiveness. And to those people, John begins by saying, There is a one greater than me, mightier than me, who's coming, and he will baptize you in a much greater way with the Holy Spirit. And then, we know, of course, he's referring here prophetically to the moment of Pentecost, when the, the Lord begins to indwell his people by his Spirit. That's continuing today for all believers. But then, as John continues his sentence, his gaze is moving and he moves his eyes away from that part of the crowd, and he fixes his gaze squarely on the scowling faces of those religious leaders. And as he reaches them with his eyes, he finishes his thought, and he says, and fire. That is to say, Jesus will baptize those hard-hearted unbelievers, not with the Holy Spirit, but with fire, with a judgment fire. John had just used, you notice, the same metaphor of fire, of fire burning, that he had just mentioned a minute earlier when he was speaking about the trees in describing these same guys, right? They were the trees cut down and thrown in the fire. And so what John is saying here, very pointedly, is that you unrepentant religious leaders, uh, you're going to get a baptism too. Only yours is going to be fire. So he's presenting a very clear and a very stark choice. Either you're baptized by Jesus with the Holy Spirit, or you're going to be baptized by Jesus with judgment fire. Pick one. Either you're consumed by His forgiveness and His mercy, or you're consumed by His wrath. There's no third option. You know, that's that's a teaching of Scripture that's so plain and so prevalent. It's amazing to me how few people talk about that anymore, especially from the pulpit. I mean, we don't want to hear it every day. It's a little bit of a downer. But there's no power in a message of mercy forgiveness and grace if you're not being saved from anything god's not a god of mercy if there's no judgment and the scriptures are plain the scriptures are clear all men all women are born in a state that is opposed to god sinful and do a just judgment and apart from the grace of god and our acceptance of that grace in the face of christ that will be our eternal future And that's all john's saying He's saying, you've got two baptisms to choose from, and they're coming soon. And the one who's coming is mightier than I. I'm not going to be able to stand against him. John gives us one final metaphor here. In verse 12, he says, using the metaphor of a harvest, he says, Jesus is coming to harvest some good grain, the fruit, in other words, of the stalk, And he's going to consume the chaff, the worthless parts of the stock. And that's a very common metaphor in the Bible. In fact, it's going to come up several more times in Matthew's Gospel. It pictures God coming to claim those who are His while separating out those who are not. That seed is the fruit of the stock. That's what He wants. That's what's being harvested. It's the valuable thing, the desirable thing. The chaff is the worthless part. Now, to be clear, the Bible is not asking you and I or anyone to live a perfect life in order to obtain god's favor or to maintain some kind of churchy pharisaical like life in order to please god that's not what it's asking for john wasn't asking people to you know look good he was asking for a changed heart a turning away of an old thinking of beliefs that say i'm god and i can do what i want to a thinking that appreciated that there is a real god and he's coming and i need to be held accountable and i have to worry about that moment and so you turn to god seeking his mercy To paraphrase John's words, don't suppose for yourself that you came from a good Christian family and that's good enough to get you into heaven, or that you're a good enough person, or that you can find someone else in this world who's worse than you, and the fact that there's someone worse than you is comforting you. That's not going to be enough. Don't don't suppose because you have a godly spouse or godly parent that you're going to get credit by association. I've I've met guys who say I ask them what their faith life is like and they go, Well, my wife goes to church a lot. And it's I think they want to stop the conversation at that point because they realize that, that was a stupid thing to say as soon as they say it, you know? And don't think time goes on forever. And don't think there won't be a judgment. Don't think you get a second chance. Don't make up things. You each get one life, the Bible says, and then comes judgment. And since you don't know when your life is going to end, Then, just as John said, you might as well assume God's axe is laid at the trunk of your tree. One day you face them, one day you're held accountable. And I have to ask you, when it comes to that day, a day some of us might face a lot sooner than we expect, are you ready? And I want you to think about these three groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and John here for a second. Are you going to go into that moment like a Pharisee? In other words, are you going to be proud of your heritage? Are you going to be proud of your knowledge? proud of your accomplishments? You're assured of your eternal future merely because of those worthless accomplishments that you're resting on? Are you cold-hearted, hard-headed, and unwilling to admit your sin before God, unmoved by His Word, unable to accept His mercy? That's a Pharisee. I've got people like that in my family. Or maybe you're like Sadducee. That's how you take life. You're too sophisticated to believe in supernatural things or spirits and all of that judgment stuff. You know, you're know, you too absorbed by the earthly pursuits, the worldly power and wealth that capture your attention. You're not concerned for what lies after this life. You're too busy trying to get what you can in this life. You don't have time for the Bible. You don't have to consider hell. You're blissfully ignorant, and you're determined to stay that way. Or maybe you're like one of John's followers, and I hope you are, that is, you know yourself, you know who you are, you know what you've done, and... You're not proud of it. And you believe that what you read in the Bible is true. And God and His holiness is true, and that there's a coming judgment of hell, and there is eternal punishment. You know the end of the world comes sooner or later, and at the very least, you know your own life will end one day. You're a realist. You understand these things. And when all of this comes to an end, you want to be ready when you face God, and you're not sure you are. So like those men and women who streamed out to see John by the river, you're eager to understand, how do I receive God's mercy? You want some assurance that you're forgiven. You don't want to take any chances on that point. You want to know. So who are you? The good, the bad, or the ugly? Because if you think you're good enough for heaven, like the Pharisees, then you don't need to worry about repenting, and so you leave this room self-satisfied. Friends, let me say something to you. You're overestimating yourself. And if you're the bad, that is you're that bad boy or girl who rebels against authority, you assume there's no coming judgment, you're not worried, well then friends, you're underestimating God. And if you're that ugly, that is you're the sinner who needs God's mercy and you desire it, then let me assure you, you have Christ's payment made on a cross to cover your debt before God and I can assure you, you have it now if by faith you receive it. The Bible says in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. That's where this journey with Christ starts. It's with that confession. If you've not made that confession, see me after this service and let's talk. And if you have, friends, then you know what I'm saying is true, and you can share it with others. Let's make that a mission this week as well. Let's be outwardly Christian so that when we come back here next week, we might have somebody with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the men like John who have spoken it in years past in bold ways at great risk and have paid the ultimate price. We know that there are men and women today in parts of the world who face those same threats and are likewise standing firm in the in the word and serving you without concern for themselves glorifying you in their martyrdom. We know father that may not be our course in life. We pray it wouldn't be father, but we would ask lord you'd use us in some mighty way. First and foremost father, we pray you'd reveal yourself to the hearts of those in this room who have yet to know you truly, who either unaware of these things father or in the past have been Reluctant to embrace them. But Father, today perhaps you have softened their hearts. We ask, Lord, that they would embrace you tonight. They would have the courage to confess you before others. Accepting what you've freely given them. And the forgiveness you offer in Christ. We pray for their souls tonight. For any who would hear this message later the same. And then Father, give us boldness like those in the Bible. To speak your word even before those who oppose you. So that we might further the purposes you have in our lives. We pray this, Father.